good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to Curious Anarchy, the podcast with the most. And today, by uh, a previous guest, welcome back, Ollie. How are you? I'm good, mate. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Very well. Um, I know that you've just sort of recently finished work, and you might be. Are you making your way home now, or? No, no, I'm working from home at the moment, mate, so it's all good. Fantastic, fantastic. Fancy that. What's that been like, working from home? You know the whole kind of resistance that some companies have had in regards to, you know, allowing workers to be flexible with their work lifestyle. Um, How's that, has it changed for you? Was that something that was introduced by your company or...? or Um, Well... It's something we've always been able to do, but you kind of have to kind of justify doing it. But now it's sort of almost mandatory. I mean, we've got an office we can go to, but they'd rather we stayed at home. So I just work from home. So, yeah, I just kind of turn off one computer and turn another one on. Awesome, awesome. Um, Mark, thank you for joining us. How are you? Am I on the wrong page? It's almost got the Boston Red Sox. I'm in the wrong page here. <laughs> That's me, I'm afraid. I came to dis- discuss real sports, not American sports. <laughs> I had to set up really quickly and I just clicked on the first photo I had. No See, the sad thing is I know you so well that I know you've got about 4,000 better photos than that. Anyway. Rather than commenting on uh, Ollie's choice of profile picture, um, we were just talking about uh, remote work. Um, Ollie's been working from home, um, and his company's been quite. They've assisted that process. What are your thoughts on remote work and working from home, and kind of the whole change, the change in dynamic? Um, hold on, Ollie, can you just mute your mic for us? Oh yeah, hang on a second. Yeah, if you can, please. (laughs) Yeah, this is how this platform works. Um, You get interference when the people leave their mic open. But um, what's what's what? What are your thoughts on that, Mark? I think within ten years, everybody will be remote from home because I don't think we will we will have the sort of world that we we have now. I think uh, automation and and, Called? What's the thing that you're going on about? You bang on all the time. You know, like the metaverse and all that. That's going to take over everything. I don't think we need to do the kind of jobs that we used to do historically. I mean, there's a few jobs that need to be done, and I'll be very surprised if in the next 20 years computers and robots aren't doing them all. I think we'll have a much more time of leisure, and we'll have to work out how human beings will survive without working and without getting an income. Interesting, interesting. Um, but in terms of the impact on like the individuals, how's how's that been for you? Has it have you seen any changes in how you kind of navigate your personal life, the overlaps, that kind of thing, Holly? Um, for me, um, no, not not really. No, I tend to sort of hasn't really had a huge impact on me, I must say. Mark, did you want to say something? Come yeah, in. I just think, um, 
think the nature of social interactions changed quite dramatically, actually. I think, um, you know, three years ago, I, most of the interactions I had were external to my house. Um, and there was like social events going on all the time, music, sport, etc. I think that's not even at 50% of what it was. I think when I go to things now, very low turnouts. I mean, even pubs, you know, very small turnouts. Um, and not the duration that it used to have. Like often we go to places at seven and be there till two. That's kind of not happening. Um, I don't know if it's like just now, I don't know if it's because so much other things are going on as well at the moment. You know, we've got the hottest weather we've had for ages. We've got, you know, financial crisis, what, what, what. And so maybe that's affecting it, but it just isn't what it was before the, the lockdown. Would you say that it's unprecedented times? I mean, everything we've had so far has been unprecedented. I mean, if you think about it logically, the last, I'm going to say from 2008, so the, the last four years have been unprecedented. You know, lots of things, like we've, we've never left Europe before. We've never had a virus before. We've never had like a, a war that's going to potentially affect Europe for, I mean, all of this is like not for 50 years, not for 100 years in some cases. So it's not unprecedented as it's never happened before but it's, it's not in our lifetime, certainly. Interesting. Um, okay, so, welcome to Curious Anarchy. Thank you for joining us, Ollie. It's much appreciated. I uh, really do appreciate you taking some time out of your beautiful Friday afternoon to come and uh, spend with us talking football. Um, you said, Ollie, these dis- oh no, talking football and um, we wanted to kind of weave into the discussion um, another area of football itself. Um, Mark, do you want to kind of elaborate on that? So so there's two things. We, we were initially going to talk about, I think today we, we were planning to talk about our all-time top 11. Um, but I think also we need to talk about the changing shape of football because not so much for you, Jermaine, but certainly for Ollie and I, the football we watched when we were kids compared to what you're watching now, it's like it's a different sport. It's the difference between proper rugby and touch rugby. It's a very different sport. So for me, we, we, it would be good to have a discussion about the changing nature of what, what, what we're being served as the nation's sport, the nation's game. Mm. So, I've been kind of thinking about how we do this. Um, It's going to be first 11 from any period of time, um, any team, anywhere in the world, and a manager. Um, So, Jermaine, what I recommend is that we all, like, for example, if we talk about goalkeeper, we go through, each person says who they would recommend as their goalkeeper. And, And I was going to say that perhaps we can say one or two notable people we would have put in if we'd had a choice to have more than one. So everyone will say, for example, this is my goalkeeper, but I may have picked so-and-so and so-and-so as well if I'd have had more options. Mark's been really eager for this one. Really, really enthusiastic, you can tell. Um, okay, I'll tell you what we'll do. We will begin with the goalkeeper and defence. We'll do it in groups. Um, and then we'll do midfield, then we'll do the forwards and the manager. Um, 
Can I recommend Jermaine that Ollie starts because uh, you and I have uh, used to having success with Man United and Man Arsenal, and as Man City have only just started becoming successful, why don't we allow him the starting point? The the new boy at the table. <laughs> exactly that. <laughs> I was actually going to suggest that Ollie began um, kick things off in great fashion, being the guest, of course. Um, your first four, your goalkeeper and, sorry, your first two groups, goalkeeper and your, your back line. Goal, goalkeeper was a really difficult one for me. I had to think quite a lot about, long and hard about a goalkeeper because we've got like some really good goalkeepers now. But I suppose I'd have to say that probably my all-time favourite goalkeeper would be I would have to say because of what he did in 99 at Wembley would be Nicky Weaver when he played for City when we were in second division the old league League 2 he would be my first choice but then of course we also had people like Pat Jennings David Seaman who I've really admired as footballers Um, so I kind of went a little bit old school um, with the goalkeepers and defenders Bizarre, the first defender out of the hat for me has to be Roberto Carlos, um, the Brazilian. Uh, he was just outstanding. And although he scored a hatful of goals, he was probably one of the most solid defenders I've ever seen when he was in that role. And I think he also played sort of, um, sort of defend, defensive midfield, but. And then it's just, I think it's your usual suspects. Um, certainly Stuart Pearce has to be one. Um, Sol Campbell was an absolute powerhouse. And he did play for Arsenal and uh, Spurs. So, you know, Mark, you're I'm okay with that one. Um, so that'd be the three. And the fourth one, I think I'd have to go with... Um, it's going to have to be a, a new a new boy, a new kid on the block. It'd have to be our Kyle Walker, because I just think he's so versatile. Um, watching him play at City, he's just a really versatile player. He's almost like watching kind of your old school defenders like Tony Adams. You know, he has that about him. So that would be my goalkeeper and defenders. Awesome. Awesome choice. Um... Mm. So you're spanning about what thirty years or so? <laughs> yeah, roughly, twenty-five. <laughs> twenty-five um, years, yeah. So who was the who was the oldest player? Oh, the oldest player. Yeah, who who started playing first? I would uh, say probably it'd be either Jennings or Shilton. I'd say they were roughly from the same era. Yeah, they were from the same era. Yeah. So, I'm just wondering, was was there anything particular about football in that era? Like, what, what kind of stories or story could you tell us about that particular season, those groups of seasons, what was happening? I think for yeah. me, um, for me it was being young and watching these men play football and 
I think very because obviously I'm a, I'm a North London boy from Islington, and my old man is an Arsenal supporter. Arsenal were very much a big part of my early years, and they kind of introduced me to football. And it's funny I was talking to somebody about this the other night. I have this really fond memory in 1979. Um, I was only young. I was, I was nine years old. I could have been eight. And it was the FA Cup semi-finals, and Arsenal were in semi-finals, and if they won that, obviously they get to the finals. My dad was downstairs watching it on the TV or listening to it on the radio, and I was upstairs with this little battery-powered transistor radio, listening to the game under the covers because I was meant to be in bed. And when Arsenal won, I was so excited, I forgot that I was meant to be in bed asleep, and I ran down the stairs, and as I ran down the stairs, my dad was running up the stairs and we both kind of met in the middle and had this little celebration because Arsenal had got through to the FA Cup final. So I think it was being a child and seeing these games played, whereas now we're all a bit more, a bit older and a bit more cynical. As a child, it's just, it literally just is the beautiful game and there's nothing else to worry about when you're a child. So football is an amazing thing that happens with these fantastic players and everything. So I think, so I think that was that was quite so, so when you were, you know, eight or nine, you know, kind of going through school, who were some of your, your favourite all-time players, like your best players or the player that you might have modelled yourself on? Uh, <laughs> when you uh, Oh, modelled myself on and well at that age it would have definitely would have been the Arsenal squad it would have been Liam Brady Pat Jennings Graham Ricks Sammy Nelson um, Willie Young it, you know it would have been that really solid Arsenal squad of the late 70s and the early 80s but also you had players like Trevor Brooking coming through um, and one of my favourites of course around about that time as well was um he had Cyril Regis. I think he was at Coventry then. Yeah, he was. He was. And, yeah, and I remember seeing him play, and he was just like a little powerhouse. Well, he was quite a big powerhouse, actually. <laughs> but <laughs> I think as well, when you look back at the sort of the Arsenal squad, a lot of the big squads, there wasn't a lot of black players at that time um, in the sort of top flight. And as as the game became more diverse, you saw players like, um, I'm going to get his name, Viv, Viv Anderson, Cyril Regis, and these were. And it Brendan was like, Batson, all those people, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not that old, Mark. Oh, <laughs> sorry, sorry. But, but yeah, no, I mean, you know, it was these players, and, and you know, they, they were just sort of like these sort of boyhood heroes, and watching them was just they, they were they were like supermen I think I don't know I think because I had nothing else to worry about and I wasn't cynical they were just like these supermen they were just out, out there doing it yeah so I don't know if cynicism creeping I don't know if you agree with me or not Ollie but I think also there was an element of so it was much more of a level playing field so if you were trying hard enough and you fought hard enough anyone could win like Stoke could get to the cup final Today, those things are almost impossible to imagine. You know, the, the, the money will dictate who gets to a final. In those days, like we watched games, like there were games where the FA Cup had six or seven replays of the same match. And the, it was just the termination of the players playing. On, on, you know, I remember when Arsenal lost to Swindon in 1967. 
I mean, Swindon, a, a, a small team, but they were just so determined to win the game. Yeah. And it was I just think, like, yeah. they were average guys. We, You and I could have played next to them. It, they were not out of this world special like, say, uh, Messi. They were just ordinary guys. Yeah. I do, no, I, I agree with you on that, Mark. I, I'm going to say, yeah, I think, because I think, whereas the FA Cup, I mean, I think of the FA Cup, you always think that you always look forward to the giant killers. And I think the last sort of giant killing I can remember was Stevenage against Newcastle. And whereas you might get a championship side knocking a premiership side out, it's not the same as somebody from you know, sort of League Two or the lower leagues just absolutely battering a premiership side or beating them. And I think, yeah, I do agree. We, we've kind of lost that, um, you know, that that element of the game now. I do, I do agree with you on that, definitely, yeah. Yeah, just before that, I was just asking, when did the cynicism creep in? <laughs> um... I'm not sure if it was cynicism. I think when you when you get a bit older, and because I think when you're young, the players are adults. They're like mum and dad. And then as you grow up, the players get older, they retire, and new players come in, and you sort of become the same kind of age as the team that you're supporting. <laughs> um, and also, you get a bit worldly wise as well, and and you you sort of. You become you become more. I, I I love the phrase armchair managers, and I desperately stay away from Premiership fan forums online because it's full of armchair managers, and I think that's where a lot of people's cynicism starts. It's the old armchair manager thinking they can do better, and why did he pick this person, and why did he pick that person? Inevitably we get proved wrong and I, I did it the other day when we had our first game of the season against West Ham and I put a post saying you know why did he why has he put Greenish up front and uh, left Silver on the bench and I thought as soon as I posted I thought oh, do you know what that's been a real armchair manager because there's me with absolutely no experience of managerial of football management you know not one jot and you've got this guy Guardiola who's got a CV that's you know absolutely superb and I'm questioning his decision, <laughs> uh, which is fine. I mean, you, you can question his decision, and you can, as a fan, say, "I oh, wonder why he did that." But to actually sort of say, "Well, I would have done it better," I think, and I think that's when the cynicism crept in. Um, and when I mean, for you, me, Ollie, hold on, hold on, hold on, let Ollie finish. Oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm good to go, Mark. Well, I just think for me, it was the Man United team that that started tapping up the parents of the players. So they got all the youth players from teams like West Ham. At that point, the game changed fundamentally so that you could literally go any youth team in the country and tap them up and get them to come to, if you offered like the parents a sum of money or you offered them a job. And it changed the nature of like what playing for your team meant. So someone like David Beckham would have played for West Ham all his life. And the fact that that happened meant he played then for Man United. And that changed, for me, the the quintessential essence of what you were doing when you were playing football. Um, and from that point on, money took over. So even, you know, like it was in the beginning, it was United playing, not even playing the players, but playing the, the parents. But then later on, obviously, more and more money came back into the game. Before that point, I mean, I couldn't tell you 
from season... I mean, I remember one year, a guy called Mickey Quinn, who looked like me, big, fat lump, and he scored three goals at, at Arsenal for Coventry in the first game of the season. And it was because the game was a real leveller, and anyone on their day could turn a game. And my cynicism came in when suddenly you saw people building teams out of the youngsters who, were, who had potential, but going to one specific team because they had the, the, the economic uh, muscle to do that. I was just wondering, I was thinking about, um, as he was speaking, he's referenced Man United going in into you know the academies and then pinching all of the younger players um, and building like the strongest team in, in England, in the UK, really. Um, I'm thinking about how Germany fielded quite, I think their average age, the average age of the team was something like 22 or 23. They were one of the youngest, I think it was two World Cups ago. Can we come back into that? Because I think... No, no, skip... just just briefly, just to mention... Okay, but I think reference... we're going to lose... Hold on, I think... just Mark, you just referenced, you've given an example of how that works. So I'm thinking, how does that kind of sit in the same way because what they're doing is not just on a national scale it's more of an international scale because they're really showcasing their youngest players to the world in that moment um so i guess i don't know how how that kind of how does that sit with you ollie um it made me think one of the things i've, I've always always sort of made me think is when you watch the world especially the world cup um i mean i love the world cup when you watch the World Cup, there'll be one club that does really well. And you can guarantee that that country will be descended on by the Premier League. And I can remember many, many, many years ago, I think it was Italia 90, Cameroon really shone through. They were this club that no one expected to do well, but they did really, really well. They played amazing football. And the next year, there was a load of um, sort of Cameroon players being brought into the top flight because the Premier League started in '93. Was it '90 that Cameroon were? But then, so, so I think there is that danger with with a World Cup where you have a team that showcases some amazing talent, and people see them, and then if you've got the money, you can buy them. So. My, I would think, well, what does that country that sells those players, what, are they losing something um, to the bigger footballing nations or the more credible, the more, the more economically viable? And I think as well, it's the money. And I've never met, I've, I've never had a sort of friendship with a professional footballer. I'd really like to know a few because it'd be really interesting to see their mindset with regards to how much they earn and as opposed to what they do because um, I'd be like well you know you got you, you put me on the bench all season and pay me 50 grand a week I'll be the happiest man in the world <laughs> but I'd love to have that conversation with a player who had come from say uh, one of the African nations to the to Europe to like the Bundesliga the Premiership the Serie A La Liga and what their experience of that was, and also why they did it. I just think that would be interesting, because I think if you were working for a company in, um, I don't know, Brixton, 
and um, you were earning a reasonable amount of money and you were good at your job and the company really valued you. And then some guy from Saudi Arabia says, do you know what, actually, if you move over to Saudi, you can do the same job and I'll give you quadruple the money. And you left Brixton and went off to Saudi Arabia for 10, for five years and earned an absolute fortune. People wouldn't really kind of decry you for doing that. Um, they'd say, oh, nice one. You know, oh, wow, that's no, not all. They might say, mm. jammy bastard. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's different, different with football, isn't it? Like Jack Grealish was a prime example. My nephew wouldn't, my nephews wouldn't speak to me for a month after that because they're Villa supporters. And it's like, it's not my fault. You know, <laughs> I didn't phone him up and make him. But, you know, there's that real anger within clubs when players move on to a, another club and it's just a yeah. step upwards. Yeah. But I think that's also to do with um, football originally was about county lines so that people even all around the world, you had people playing and they represented the area they were from. And, and part of what you're talking about there is even though international money, the, you know, the, the people that run the clubs now, maybe from all over the world, the actual supporters still believe that that's, let's say, Aston Villa. And we wouldn't expect the player to leave Aston Villa and go and play for City. Because that's that's a lack of respect, lack of loyalty, when when they were with that team from from day one, and that's kind of what we're saying about Alex Ferguson when he took all the the youngsters. From I mean, there was a time when the England team was virtually made up of people that came through the West Ham youth team, and none, virtually none of them were left at West Ham. You know, they'd all come through the youth policy. They were the most attractive youth system in the country at the time, but they'd all left because other clubs had poached them. Um, I want you to, if you don't mind, I want to say my goalkeeper and back line because otherwise we're not going to get through the... the that was the next got, thing I was good, we were going to yeah. come to. Because also I wanted to question, um, when Ollie said he was old school, I think when you hear my one, I think you're going to think you're very young and modern by comparison. That's always good, Mark. Okay, so I want to make you feel younger. My goalkeeper, I had three goalkeepers in mind, but the one I chose was Lev Yashin who was the Russian goalkeeper from 1950 to 1970. And I always remember him as being one of the most amazing goalkeepers, so much uh, dynamic and energy and just resilience. And I think most people today would not even have heard of him. He played for Dynamo Moscow for 20 years. See, again, talking about the idea of you play for one team all of your life, that's kind of what in those days was, was, was symbolic. Um, I want to mention an honourable mention to Bert Truman, who played for Manchester City in the FA Cup final. He was a German prisoner of war who stayed in Britain and he played in an FA Cup final. He broke his neck in the first 10 minutes and played the whole game. Absolutely, he did. It was Bert Troutman. Yeah, yeah, sorry, that's what I thought I said. Yeah, yeah. I tried to say his name. I might have said it slightly (laughs) wrong, but I tried to say his name. I mean, People like that, you just don't hear about anymore. But, you know, my goalkeeper would have been Yashin. My second choice would have been Dave Seaman because of what he did for England and Arsenal. But my third one might, third one might surprise you. A chap called Albert Camus, who was a philosopher and an anarchist. And he actually played for a team for a very long time in goal. So I wanted to mention him as well. Now, I didn't know my he was back... a goalkeeper, but I didn't know he was an anarchist. But no, yeah, no, he no, was, by the way, right. I used an anarchist, but I didn't know it was a Yeah, he played, he played for a, I suppose you'd call it an amateur team, for quite a long time. Um, and he was known to be a, uh, to prefer the position of goalkeeping. 
Um, my back four would be kind of similar to you a bit, but um, Carlos Alberto, who was the Brazil captain in 1970 when they won the World Cup, arguably the most um, stylish and memorable Brazilian team to win the World Cup. He was the he was the their captain. I'm putting him in as right back. I'm having Pablo Maldini of Italy as my left back. And the two centre-halves are probably the two most successful internationally and for their club would be Franz Beckenbauer for Germany. Most incredible uh, player and manager. And Sergio Ramos uh, for Spain and for, uh, is it Madrid? Um, just unbelievable careers where they've just been there virtually all their life and they've been almost unplayable at times. Interesting. Interesting. Um, you yeah, that, yeah. Good, good, a good, uh, a good, um, good roundup there. I'm very impressed. Yes, I forgot about Ramos and the real lows. Yeah. Mm, um, okay, so my goalkeeper and backup four. I would have to go with. It was kind of a toss up between Seaman and Schmeichel um, simply because like they played at the same time they were absolutely phenomenal goalkeepers and the way that they were able to command their defence I mean Seaman in his closing season um, was part of the team that went <laughs> 49 unbeaten for Arsenal so I mean, no that, no it was it was it was um, Lehman that played in that right yeah but he was part of that team in, in his closing, the twilight of his years. Halfway through that, halfway was, through that run. Of the team. Sorry, Mark, hold on. He was part of the team that went 49 unbeaten. And, and that that's quite a significant thing for a goalkeeper because I think that the perception of pe- that people have of goalkeepers is that you just stick them in goal. You know, you think about <laughs> when I was in school, it's like everyone would get picked. You're picking your teams and then whoever's left over goes in goal and it's kind of that that last ditch effort um, that nobody really focused on but there were some really really good quality goalkeepers um, Schmeichel stood out as he was goalkeeper for Man United and I've been a United fan since I was a kid um, and Seaman of course just being an amazing England goalkeeper so you know it's 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 uh, it was a tough one, but I kind of had to give it to Seaman. I think that he kind of deserves that one. Um, in terms of defence, I think that there's a bit of a, a theme building up here. Um, Roberto Carlos. <laughs> I'd have him on the left, and then Sol Campbell in the centre. Um, I would have Rio Ferdinand and mm, for my for my fourth I think I would pick I was thinking Maldini but you've picked him already Mark and we've both everyone's picked Roberto Carlos so far so I kind of want to open it out a little bit more but um I would have put Yapstam in there. 
I remember him coming to United and he made quite a significant impact. I think the, the twin pairing of him and Rio Ferdinand was just sublime. Um, so yeah, that would be my, my keeper and back four. Can I just, I mean, just very quickly, can I quick pick up on two things? I didn't pick um, Roberto Carlos, I picked Carlos Alberto, who was the, he was much older from a different period. Oh, I thought you were just, because um, I no, 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 he was the, he was the captain, uh, Roberto Carlos wasn't like the captain. Great. so it's just two of us that picked Roberto Carlos. And, and I just want to say, David Seaman, interestingly, uh, played a cameo in the season that Arsenal went unbeaten in that he played for Man City before they were the team they are today. Um, and the fans were like um, singing his name all through the game, even though they, City were losing. And Arsenal and City fans just sang his name all through the game. Ollie, midfield. Can I just say, I was mm. at that game. <gasps> what? <laughs> I was at that game. And um, I remember um, we were so bad that towards the end of the game, the whole of the Man City the whole all of us we were all singing it's just like watching Brazil and we weren't singing it to Arsenal that's how bad we were so yeah but uh, yeah I remember going to that game and uh, and uh, Seaman coming out against Arsenal and the absolute roar that he got when he did was <laughs> unbelievable and one of the things I would like to say just very quickly we'll probably come on to this Alice, one of the things I really like is when a player leaves their club goes to another club when those two clubs play they get a um, standing elevation or they get a cheer and I think that's really important because I know for a fact yeah. that when that when we go to the Emirates this season if Jesus is on the starting lineup, when he comes on that pitch he will get such respect from us uh, because we love him we absolutely love that guy and I think you know we will treat him just as well as at Arsenal as we did when he was at um, City. Not that I'm gutted he's gone, but uh, anyway, so my midfield, <laughs> um, it's always difficult with midfielders because there are so many different midfield positions and I'm just looking at my notes and I'd suppose that the first midfielder I'd go for would be um, Vincent Company. Even though he's not your classic midfielder, he's a linchpin player. He sits in between midfield and defence. And when he was at City, he commanded that side. So I'd have to say, definitely, um, Vincent Company. And of course, without a shadow of a doubt, and I think probably universal, Kevin De Bruyne. Um, I would say probably one of the greatest, definitely top five midfielders in Europe. So he, I mean, he's just superb. He just keeps giving for Seti, and the, I don't think he's ever had a bad season. And he's in, and unfootball related, although it is indirectly, he is such a humble man. You know, you never see De Bruyne. Uh, 
kicking off. You never see him in the papers being an idiot. You never, you know, you just see him about his football. And when they interview him, he just strikes you as being such a humble and gracious person for being where he is. So that, you know, all those reasons mean he has to go in there. So after De Bruyne and company, I did struggle a bit because it ended up being the City midfielder because I had <coughs> Eduardo Silva, Bernardo Silva, and I thought, oh, we've run out of options. So I did think, well, who else was there? Who else did I like? And I came up with a little bit of a left field um, one, a player that I really, really enjoyed watching. Um, two of them, probably from the same era, one of them was Steve McManaman, and I know there's a City connection, but when McManaman was at Liverpool, I just thought he had an absolute grace about him. Yeah. He was just superb. And also, from the same period probably, I really enjoyed watching Graham Lasso. And there was something about Lasso that I just always really liked. And I think if he'd have been around now, we would have probably bought him. So I think, you know, that those are my, that would be my midfield. But then, of course, you can't ignore people like Paul Scholes, David Beckham in their day, Ryan Giggs. Oh, this is so painful to say, but you have to respect those players. Um, <laughs> Why is it painful? Oh, they're just <laughs> a dirty man. It's like when everyone has a go at Marcus Rashford, I think. I like Rashford, but he plays for United. Like, oh, yeah. I think that's the frustration with a lot of football fans. Yeah, but he's a lovely guy, and I really respect him. But I wish he'd play for another team. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so that Man United midfield was just oh superb. Um, one of the Man United players I also wanted to put in my defence was I can't think of his guy. He was Eastern European. He was huge. He had really short blonde hair. He was massive, and he looked like he was one of these kind of mercenaries. No, no, he was from somewhere in Eastern Europe. I think he was. He might have been sort of Croatian or one one of those sort of Eastern European countries. No, it was Sukic or something. Wasn't it? It was a short name. Yeah, it was kind of like Sikovic or oh, was it Jurkovic? But he just would have scared the life out of me if I met him <laughs> on a football thing. He was terrifying. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think midfielders I could talk about all day, but it's difficult to pick the four. But I'd have to, for variety, go for company, De Bruyne, Lasseau, and McManaman. Oh, that's nice. I like that. I like that. Um, Mark, your turn. Midfield, please. Can I just check? Do you, do you not mean Vidic? Ollie. That's the man, yeah, Vidic. Yeah, yeah, I thought I thought you were talking about him. Um, also, I have to say that you've picked two defenders in your midfield, which is quite interesting. Who was that? Oh, Lasso was a left back, wasn't he? Yeah, Lasso was a left back, and, and Company started as a defender, a centre half. Yeah, well, the thing with Company is that he had that lovely holding role in City, where he stood between the midfield and the defence. But his heyday the... was his heyday was a centre half, wasn't he? I mean, yeah. He was the first proper centre half City had, you know, I, ever. I think you have to remember as well, Mark, that we're we're uh, armchair managers right now. So carry on, carry <laughs> we could, on. We could okay, play so all right, so I've got a midfield that I think could take care of um, Ollie's so far. I'm starting off with Zinedine Zidane. Um, I wanted Zidane ahead of Xavi and Platini, who were both exceptional. Um, 
So I'm going to start with them. Um, secondly, I would have Diego Maradona uh, ahead of Johan Cruyff and Ronaldinho. Uh, Diego played in midfield and attack, so I want to put him there. And the third one, uh, Ollie's referenced already, but he was the best midfield player I've ever seen play. And that was Liam Brady. I mean, he was just sublime. I mean, the guy had a, has a touch and a swerve on him that was just like, I think he'd play in any era. But I want an honourable mention to, because you talked about Man United's midfield, the one who took them on single-handedly and often gave them as much, you know, as they gave him was Patrick Vieira. I mean, he was an uh, he was an unstoppable player. Um, the only way they got stopping him was being sent off. It was the only way to stop him. It was just times they could have carried on 20 minutes after the game and no one would have known that the ball had gone and the players had gone. Excellent choices. So for me, I'm going to go with three in midfield. Um, I would put, for all intents and purposes, Roy Keane in the middle. Um, and then on the wings, I'd have Giggs and I would have Ronaldinho. That's it. Does that make you technically the only technically the only person to have picked only from their team out of the three of us? I've picked players from other teams. No, pitch Michael. I mean, um, no, I'm saying he's he's picked the midfield solely of Man United players, which you know we've tried to diversify a bit. I think. Yeah, I mean, I I, I was going to have King Cladsey in there. Without shadow of a doubt, but it was a toss-up between Kikadzi and De Bruyne, and De Bruyne won out. And I suppose I deliberately wanted to sort of mix it up, sort of era-wise, being someone who's come through the '80s and the '90s, and now where we are now with football. Um, but to be fair, if I had back in, in at their heyday, um, was it Ronaldinho, Keane, and Giggs as midfield? I'd be quite happy with that. You've got your midfield general, and then you've got your two real flair right. players. I'd be happy with that. Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I see what you mean, but I mean, I still think Jermaine's playing a bit of a homeboy game there. Yeah. So, moving on then, forwards and manager. You're playing four four two, aren't you? So, who are your two? I've, I've been playing four four three three. Okay, great. Ollie, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I'll probably play 4 4 12. Now. <laughs> um, it's really, really, really difficult because if I go through the list that I had, I had Sergio Aguero, Ian Wright, Thierry Henry, Eric Cantona, Gabriel Batistuta, um, and Mario Balotelli. But after. Phenomenal, phenomenal. After sort of, you know, the, how do you choose? I kind of thought, well, what I'd have to go for would be, because I've got De Bruyne in the midfield with his distribution, I think, for me, the ultimate pairing up front all time would have to be Thierry Henry and Sergio Aguero because you've got a workhorse and a natural goal scorer. 
and I would love to have Mario Balotelli and Sergio Aguero up front. Um, I often think that Ian Wright's probably one of the best strikers in his time and a really lovely guy as well. Um, but I have met Ian Wright and he was a lovely, lovely, lovely guy. Um, and the reason I picked Batistuta is that he's a really interesting guy because when I was doing this, I was kind of reading up about the players because you, you know, you know about the he was a he was a goal machine and everybody wanted to sign him. He played for Fiorentina, all. Of, but do you know actually, he never liked football. He never liked playing football. He was just very good at it and got paid very well for doing it. <laughs> so. What, what he, is the talent that you have? Like... <laughs> <laughs> well, do you know what? That's exactly what he said. He said, I've always been good at football. I've always been talented at football. So I wasn't going to waste that talent. So it's my job. And so I think he kind of like descends from the sort of, you know, the, the, the plinths of footballing legends and these untouchable kind of deities to somebody who must have got up in the morning and gone, oh, God, I've got to go to work. So he kind of comes towards <laughs> us a little bit. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I, in the end, I just thought it had to be Thierry Henry and Sergio Aguero. I just think that they're just phenomenal goal scorers. Uh, you know, Henry was a natural goal scorer. He was an amazing player. Um, and, you know... And the same with Aguero as well. Omri would put himself in situations and positions where he would score. You know, he was such an intelligent footballer. It was, you know, to see him play, it was a joy to watch him play, unless he was playing against you. But just to watch him play. And the one thing I loved about Omri, I don't know if you ever, there was a programme about footballers. And they were comparing different footballers to how they think and how their, their you know, the, basically their intelligence. And they were showing a load of pro post-match interviews. And they showed an interview with Thierry Henry where they asked him, and he said he was saying things like, oh, it was a marvellous game, everything fell into place, you know, the, the tactics and the training had really paid off, it was an absolute joy to play the game, everybody really worked hard, there was a real sense of togetherness. Um, and, and he waxed lyrical and it was beautiful and then they cut to an interview of Wayne Rooney where he basically just kind of went well yeah well I scored a goal and it's always good to score goals <laughs> if you don't score goals then you don't win and if you let them have goals then you're not going to win the All game the obvious just statements. <laughs> you moron you're, and, and, I'm, and I'm not being judgmental I really try not to be judgmental but I, obviously I am but Henri had he was like the full package. You knew that you wouldn't you wouldn't see him sort of, you know, drinking vodka shots from a stripper's belly button in some club in North London. <laughs> yes. He'd be sat in a he'd be sat in a fine restaurant in the West End, sort of sipping a hundred a hundred pound bottle of wine whilst eating some incredible meal and having conversations around every topic you can imagine. Um and yeah, so yeah, I, 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 uh, Aguero and Henri, fantastic players. On to you, Mark. So it's interesting because um, 
You reminded me, Olivia, um, Nicholas Anelka, who I think played for Arsenal and, and Man City, um, along with a few other teams as well. Uh, he also said he hated football. Um, so it's quite interesting the amount of gifted people who played the game and just really hated the game with a passion, but were just that skillful. I suppose it'd be like a musician who doesn't particularly enjoy music, but just is excellent at playing his instrument. Um, I know a few th- of them. Well, exactly. Um, my three would be, um, I suppose to start with the obvious one, I'm, I'm going to say Thierry Henry as well. He's the best player I've ever seen play live. He's the, he's the best player I've ever gone to a stadium and watched and thought, I could watch this guy for time and time again. And just one thing, in, in a warm-up once with Robert Perez, they played kick the ball up to each other all the way down the pitch. And they made it look so easy. And I'll never forget how angry they both were when they tried to do a, a funky penalty where instead of shooting it in, they passed it to the other one to score. And they were so upset that what they thought was creative and beautiful, the referees wouldn't accept it for, as unsporting because it was never meant in that way. It was just, how can we make the game more fun? But, so definitely that. Um, what's interesting about Henri is when he came to Arsenal, he was a, he was a winger. He wasn't a striker, he was a winger. And uh, Wenger saw something in him to make him a striker, which allowed him to be so creative, um, which was amazing. Two of the best players I ever saw. Um, I never saw them live, which is why I make the distinction. Both players started when barefoot and in absolute poverty, uh, watching their family and their friends die out because of them living in absolute poverty would be uh, obviously Pele, one of the greatest players I ever saw. 16, one of the best young players you will ever see. The, the power, the grace, the, the physicality he had at 16, let alone the rest of his career. And watching him take off for a header, well, he wasn't the tallest player, but he seemed to just hover in the air. Um, and the other player, Eusebio, never gets the credit that he deserved. He was an amazing player. Um, he literally dragged Portugal in the 1966 World Cup virtually to the final. I mean, I think they lost in the quarterfinal or the semi-final. But it was virtually just him doing it on his own. Um, that's why I like him and Maradona. They both dragged their nation state to virtually do it on their own. And they were powerful. They had a brilliant shot. They had the ability to turn people inside out. And a time when the game was hard, when you played on muddy surfaces and people properly kicked you. Um, you know, there's a lot of people like George Best, I'd like to mention, who were kicked all over the park. But they never mentioned it. Whereas today, it's an art form to be kicked, you know, to fall on the floor and roll over and all that stuff. So it's an art form. The, the most creative player I ever saw, can't put him in the company I've just said because they were just exceptional, but Dennis Burkamp was a chess player of a footballer. He could just read the situation and his vision. I mean, I think every team in the world would love to have had him just for his vision. And there's a goal he scored against Argentina in a, in a I think it was a World Cup quarterfinal or semi-final where someone booted it about 60 yards to him. He, he tapped it up in the air put it onto the other foot and chipped it over the goalkeeper. I mean, it's just sublime, his, his vision and his touch. But he's not quite good enough to get into my uh, forward line. Mm. Yeah, no, no, I, I, there was, I would have also tipped a nod to Eusebio, absolutely a phenomenal player. And Pelé, I always remember, um, there was an interview with Pelé before, obviously, he's, he's not a well man. Um, and there was an interview with him many years ago where the, the, 
the guy who was interviewing him said, what, what, what do you think your greatest moment was? And he said something like, I mean, he's probably said different ones. So the one that always stuck with me was he said, um, he said, I was, I was playing, in, playing in a sort of international game. And after the game, I was interviewed by one of the British um, press. And they said to me, what do you think of the fact that people are calling you the footballing equivalent of Muhammad Ali? And he said he didn't actually have any words. He said, because that was the biggest compliment at that point that anybody could ever pay him because they'd done comparing him to footballers. So they had to move on to another, another sport to sort of emphasise actually how good he was. So I was just, just really enjoy that story. I mean, so the other thing, Ollie, was, um, you know, he played originally in Brazil for a team called Santos. Now, the team that they had started on a waste ground they had no boots they had no shoes the whole team played barefoot and eventually they got so good beating teams that had boots on that they someone sponsored them a kit and that about half the team went on to play for santos a newly formed like a bottom of the league table team who they dragged to the top of the league and about four or five or six of them ended up in the brazil national squad and that was all from a group of lads playing together as kids and they just stayed together. They were just that good and they knew each other that well. They, they went all the way through their career playing together. I read his book and it was one of the most enlightening things I've ever read. It was just talking about overcoming adversity. Amazing book. Greek economics. <laughs> there was another guy who played for Brazil and I can't remember his name. And they used to call, uh, if, they used to call him the animal. And he played for Brazil. Um, was it Eduardo? Was it Eduardo? Was it Ed Ed Edmundo? No. Was it Edmundo? Edmundo. Is that right, Mark? Was it this the animal? I think Mark it, might Edmundo. Be it up. Yeah, yeah. It was yes. Edmundo. There we go. Yeah. yeah. And I remember that he he built this reputation around himself, which. Um, obviously he exploited on the pitch and I remember reading I had a book of footballers which I bought for 10p from a charity shop and he was in there and it was about I mean he remembers <clears throat> when he was younger playing football in the sort of slums of Brazil um, amidst sort of this very very big sort of gang culture and a culture of real violence. And he said that he remembers being about 12, 13 years old. And in his downtime, he would go and play football. And they'd all put their, they'd all take off their jackets and put the jackets down and have like a halfway line with goal posts. And then when the game finished, they'd go and pick their jackets up. And he said, always remember, you'd have to be careful when you pick your jacket up because your gun was underneath it. And, you know, he was talking about his, you know, his story, his lived experiences, and how he was lucky enough that somebody spotted him and pulled him out of that life. And But he was brutally honest, because he said, like, you know, when you've grown up in that life, it never really leaves you. So when you go onto a football pitch as a sort of teenager or a young adult or a sort of late teens, early 20s, and you're playing a game, 
and people are being aggressive towards you, you revert to type. And he, he, he had one of the most appalling disciplinary records, yet was still an amazing player. And there's just something about him that I really like. Um, you know, I think that's, there's just not really like the sort of the, the, the violent side of him, but that kind of, that keeping that part of him and, and uh, but also the success that he garnered with that, it. That competitive edge, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Sense. Do you guys know about this? When I went to Brazil, I, I was informed by most people that I bumped into that there was a player that was better than Pele in the Brazil team in 1962, a guy called Garincha. Um, oh, God, yes, I've heard of him. Have you heard yeah. about him? Because it's a story yeah. doesn't get told very often, but he was meant to be better than Pele. They reckoned he would he would go on to higher, bigger things. And um, he had a terrible life where he was um, a severe alcoholic. He had about six or seven car crashes where he lost really important members of his family, like his mother. Um, and he died of cirrhosis of the liver from drinking too much. Mm. But he actually, when you go to Brazil, they always mention him. As soon as you say Pele, because when, when people from the West come, they always expect you to talk about Pele. And as soon as you say Pele, they go, but do you know about Grincha? It's like, no, I never heard of him. And then they tell you the story. Yeah, he used to smoke 40 fags a day, drink <laughs> copiously. <laughs> yes. um, I yeah. mean, to be fair, in those days, everyone smoked when they played football, but I know what you mean. 40 a day is a lot. A yeah. Lot. And yet he turned up and played like he... Um, I do remember watching a TV programme about Grincher and people who had played with him said that he would go out on a Friday night, would be drinking till dawn, smoking, drugs, women. Apparently he had children in double figures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he would be the first on the he would be the first at training on Saturday morning for the match in the afternoon. And they could never understand. They, one of the guys said, I always thought he had a twin brother. They were twins. One of them liked getting drunk and partying, and the other one liked playing football. He said, because on those occasions where you drink too much, and then you go and play, you felt rough, you felt awful, you felt slow and sluggish. He said, this guy just came out and just it was, it was amazing. But yeah, he certainly had his demons. And they say that millions of people turned up for his funeral. I mean, the, mm. the, there are absolute millions turned up for us to see because he was a hero in in Brazil. Like outside of Brazil, most people didn't know his name, but he was yeah. a hero in Brazil. He was, the, he was the George Best of Brazil, or George Brest was. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think yeah. 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 I think yeah. When you talk about players like that, I, that's why that's where my love for Mario Balotelli comes in. Because yeah, yeah, we had him briefly, yeah. and. There was just something about him that yeah. I absolutely yeah. loved. Yeah. And he was crazy. You know, he he was just out there. And he was also, uh, he was very similar to one of my other favourite sports, um, sports people, which is Dennis Rodman. Um, and Balotelli was yeah. a guy who basically, came from absolutely nothing. He had a really neglectful and abusive childhood, was bounced around various foster homes, um, and which couldn't cope with him because of his behaviour. And he eventually ended up with an older, I think it was an older couple who fostered him. 
and the one of the, the I'm going to say the dad, but I know that's really stereotypical. But I don't know. One of the one of his foster carers said, "You're really good at football," and really encouraged him into football. And he kind of tells his story, but you know he brings that personality into football, and. You don't see many players that bring that big personality back into football. Um, you know, your Edmundos, your Grinches, you know. And I think there's something really nice about that kind of slightly off-kilter personality. And with Balotelli, when he was good, oh my God, he was amazing. And I can remember a couple of games for us when he came off the bench and you just saw it in his eyes, he just went, I'm going to change this and he just changed it the whole game changed when he came on the pitch but there are other days when he just played well um, so yeah I, I, I do like those players I do have a soft spot for the uh, George Bests the Edmondos the Balotellis the Grinches the Paul Gascoigne's yeah absolutely, I, say, absolutely. Like, yeah. He, I think Paul Gascoigne was one of the players that I was considering I was thinking oh, why it would be nice to give him the honour um, but yeah, definitely gets the honourable mention. That's for yeah. sure. I'm curious to see which Man United forwards you've picked, Jermaine. Oh yeah, sorry, we've gone off on a tangent. No, Jermaine, this is brilliant. This is this is great. This is what this is really about. Um, so forwards, my my three, um, <clears throat> Cantona. Um, I I just can't think of how amazing I thought he was um, he came from Leeds and this was like back when I was like what seven eight and um, I didn't really support a team at that point I was more just about players and I, I really liked particular players and I was interested in Cantona and when he made the switch to Man United I then became a Man United fan as I was Leeds um, <laughs> so for me, it's just the history of, of Cantona. I think the perhaps one episode that kind of really raised some controversy around his sort of uh, his legend and the way that it's seen, um, which was quite unfortunate. But <clears throat> I think just as a player, as a person, as just this being of energy that just had this way of controlling the ball. Um, I also want to reference Zidane um, because Zidane is, is also one of those players who I just think, like, does he have glue on his boots? Like, why does the ball always seem to stick to him? Um, a few other players have that kind of um, nature about the way that they play, but um, <sighs> first of all, I want to give an honourable mention also to Andy Cole and Dwight York. I would have had, I think, those two up front if it was just two. I think that the pair of them were just amazing. Again, it's just the connection that they had with each other. Like, when when you've played football or if you've, you've ever experienced um, being sort of, you know, fairly relatively successful in football, um, when you have a connection with another player in a team like that I just think that there's like their bond was just unbreakable um, 
but I haven't picked those two, either of them. I wanted to pick um, Didier Drogba because I think the guy was just, again, phenomenal, phenomenal player. Um, played for Chelsea, unfortunately, um, but so it is. Um, <clears throat> I acknowledge that he's, he was a great, great player. Um, and my final forward. This one's interesting. Um, it would have been Henri. Henri. Again, phenomenal. Quick. Strength, poise, power. Just like that intelligence. Um, I just think the three of them up front would have just been complete mayhem on any defense. Um, and manager, it'd have to be Alex Ferguson. It would have to be. I couldn't pick anybody else. I think you guys have to give your managers as well, don't you? Ollie, Mark? Yes. Yes. Um, are you are you inviting me to give my manager yes, now? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Um, I really struggled with this one for obvious reasons and I could say Guardiola because he's just been amazing with City I could say Pellegrini because he was amazing with City as well but I thought no I'll, I'll go away from home and that left me with two really difficult choices um, so I was left with Alex Ferguson because you can't deny what he achieved with that Man United squad and you know I think as, as much as um, you know being a City fan my feelings towards United are quite obvious but I remember going to a record uh, not a record shop but a bookshop with a friend of mine who is a massive Man United fan in the Trafford Centre and Alex Ferguson was there signing books, his, like his autobiography, was it My Life in Football? And I remember going into the shop and seeing Alex Ferguson and thinking, you know, how can I not be in this room and get involved? Because this guy's amazing. I hate him. But, no, well, I, I hate what he stands for. I hate that he's Man United's manager, but I can't hate him. Because he's probably a really nice guy. Um, I've never met him, so I don't know. But I, you know, he's probably a really sort of good family man, whatever. So I went to look in the football section for a book that would be neutral enough for me to give to him, and neutral enough for him not to punch me in the face. And I found a book by I can't remember the guy's name, and I'm looking around my bookshelf, and I can't. I haven't got it here. It's called Manchester United Ruined My Life. And it's by a guy, he's a Jewish writer, he's Jewish, and he moved to Manchester as a very young child and supported Man City because he lived in Moss Side with his family. And all his mates, when he went to school, supported Man United. But because 
of the type of personality he was, he stuck with Man City. So he wrote this book, Manchester United Ruined My Life. So I saw that, I bought it, I paid for it, I stood in the queue, I gave it to Alex Ferguson, and he looked at me and gave this little smile and went, City fan, are you? And I went, I am indeed Mr. Ferguson. And he went, never mind. And he just signed it. To Ollie, all the best, Alex Ferguson. And I've kept that book, and I've still got it somewhere, and I just thought, you know, he is a man, he was fantastic. The other manager I was dealing with was, and I think I'm going to go with, there's, there's another one as well, is Jurgen Klopp. I think he has created an amazing Liverpool side as much as and my stomach is churning as I say this I've got two best friends and they're both Liverpool supporters and you know it's always a difficult day when Man City play Liverpool and we go to Chris's house and sit there in front of his big TV and watch it but I just love Klopp he is just such an he's a big character he's a very skilled manager he's also best mates with Guardiola um, and the other ca- the other very very close contender I did have and I think this guy deserves an honourable mention of honourable mentions is Gareth Southgate and I know he's an international manager but I think what he's done with the England squad that we have now is second to none I think he has crafted created and selected he has when you think of our English squad, he's built partnerships. That sort of, um, you know, the, the, the midfield partnerships he had with, um, oh God, what's his name? We've just signed them, signed them as well. Declan Rice and, what was the other guy's name? He's just signed for City. But yeah, he, he's built an amazing squad absolutely amazing squad but I am going to have to go with Jurgen Klopp awesome awesome um, Mark so um, I, I narrowed it down to two and it was really hard I mean I admire all the people you've said but they weren't in my final two um, my second like if, if I hadn't chosen my number one my first one would have been Bill Shankly um, just incredible uh, it's a bit of a joint one, actually. Bill Shankly and, and Brian Clough. Incredible what they did for football on a worldwide level. They were just unbelievable, their input. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, 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 they're, and they're... Okay, so this is really weird saying it today because of what football's become. But they're keeping it as a working-class game and, and recognising the strengths of the working-class communities in that game was phenomenal. Um, I think everything that Liverpool have today is down to Bill Shankly's vision of, you know, that, that comment about, you know, it's not about life and death, it's way more important than that. Things like that, that just drew something for a community that was impoverished and turned it into an, a celebration, a Mardi Gras, if you like. And I think Brian Clough did the same thing in Nottingham and in Derby as well. I think unbelievable characters, what they brought to the game and what they brought from the resilience of the communities they came from. I've definitely got to mention them. But for me, my all-time manager, Probably going to say someone you guys haven't really heard of or you don't know a lot about, but for me, he was incredible. What he did and when he did it was a guy called Herbert Chapman. Herbert Chapman was the manager of Huddersfield Town and then went on to become manager of Arsenal and completely changed football in the 30s, completely changed it. Um, 
unbelievable. I mean, brought in so many things that we use in the modern day today that at the time was unheard of. Was resented by the establishment that carried on and built so many different things for the footballing community. And unlike a lot of the managers today, only managed two clubs and died in post in, the, in his last job, like as manager of Arsenal. He actually died in post. So I've got to mention him. Um, I, just, I just like people that, as a manager, as someone who's helping people around them, and you dedicate your passion and your career to do that for all of your life. For me, that's what makes it so beyond just, uh, you know, every day. So I've got to say that, really. Interesting, interesting. Um, I think that's everyone now. That's been an interesting 11. Um, mm, just before we kind of close, because I know that we've been going for just over an hour now, um, but I just want to kind of really tap into uh, one of these quite contentious points, I guess, kind of how capitalism kind of underlines football, the commercialism of football, um, the selling of merchandise, the prices of tickets going up over time, um, quite significantly even just in my time alone. Um, what are your thoughts on like these really highly valued players um, and how do you kind of wrestle that around a more fairer society? Ali, that's to you initially and then we'll go to Mark. Oh God, that's a really... Oh, that, that, that's a whole evening's worth of discussion, isn't it? Really? Um, I suppose for me, I think a lot of it's about progression. And I try and look for the positives in everything. Because I spent a lot of my life being very negative. And doing very negative things. So I think that football has evolved... I think that the Premiership has has its downsides, and I do totally understand the whole ethos of the working-class game, of the sort of football being really accessible, um, to now being incredibly elite, but also the the popularity of the Premiership. And I'm going to talk about the Premiership because I don't really know much about the Bundesliga and Serie A and what have you. Has brought players into the game who previously wouldn't have come into the game. And so I suppose if you look at players like um, like Adbon Lahore, even players like Aguero, um, Maybe they they haven't they wouldn't have had the opportunity to play in a big league. I know that sounds a bit arrogant, but I'm trying to think of positives um, for it, and I'm trying to think the fact that you can watch the Premiership and you can see the sort of you know, and I think it's it's kind of leveling in a certain sense 
and I sort of see that at Man City where you have players like um, sort of Aguero is Argentinian, we have Jesus who's Brazilian, but we also had people like Kyle Walker, we had people like Phil, well, we have people like Kyle Walker, Phil Foden, John Stones. So you have your your sort of um, people who've come through academies, people, uh, people who are from Manchester. But I, I just think it's an evolution. It's like with anything, it kind of evolves and we are where we are now, I think it's much, much, much harder to make a living out of professional football. Um, as in, you know, just think I'm going to be a footballer. And my, my nephew is on the books of Wolves at the moment, and he's, you know, he's really, really good. But my sister is always saying, look, you know, you've got to keep your, you've got to keep your, um, your mind in a realistic place you've got to go to school you've got to get your qualifications because there's no guarantees um, so I don't know it is a difficult one yeah the money does play a big part and as a Man City fan <laughs> you know we've got loads of cash and you know we've won stuff so yeah I don't know I think yeah I'll stop rambling and let you guys no, I, yeah it's, it's just interesting to hear that kind of a perspective because um, you know, I guess you might say like the old school sort of tribalist or traditionalist be like, no, you know, this this is all bad and it's all wrong and you know, this isn't football anymore and they, they have this real resistance to you know how it how it works. Um Mark, what are your kind of comments and reflections on that? I think we should have a proper discussion on this, like this should be part two and I think we should invite Carly to join us yeah. with that. I think we should have a, a proper debate on that. And I'm just going to, two very quick things I want to say, really quick. My grandfather had trials for West Ham in 1930. He couldn't play for them because he couldn't afford to give up his day job for the money that they were offering him as a sort of semi-amateur, semi-professional footballer. That's how far we've come from what the game used to be about. And um, today, most clubs are doing three kits a season because merchandise has overtaken fans in terms of the biggest a financial pull of the game. For, for 50 odd years, it was it was entrance money that made the game. Today, it's merchandise and TV. So let's change the shape of how we look at football. Three strips every year for, for the big teams. So you've got a home away and a second away kit and a training kit as well. So that's four kits for most teams. Um, Arsenal had to borrow a kit from Nottingham Forest in 1887 to start the game, start their team up. They didn't even have a kit they could use. So I, just looking at the journey that football's taken and how far it's gone, I'd love to discuss it fully. I'm going to have to probably shoot off now, but I'm happy to go for part two next time with the four of you. That would be really interesting. So, um, yeah, let's put that on pause and see if we can come back and do it justice. thoughts on it um, but yeah I think that's quite a nice note that you've left it on Ollie it's been a pleasure having you once again and guys it's we'll been be amazing again. yeah definitely <laughs> um, I love the fact you're wearing red socks Ollie I love that about you <laughs> no, I'm, I'm also a huge baseball fan and unfortunately many years ago I because I'm not American I have no ties to America. I chose a baseball team, which was the Boston Red Sox, who are really not doing very well this season. 
but you have to stay with your team. Well, you have ups and downs, don't you? Um, yeah, absolutely. as well. And just one of the final things, just to kind of close off, was one of the things that came up was um, players that started and ended their career with the same team. Oh, which, which, which of those players? Uh, this is nothing to like, kind of like respond to now, but it's just something <laughs> to consider. Um, because uh, you know, in, in the modern day, you've got a lot of transfers, of really big, high-value transfers, and millions mm. and millions and hundreds of millions of pounds being spent. And it's just football at the end of the day. Yeah. That's what we want to see. We want to watch players battling it out on the pitch. Yeah. To win of course and I guess by winning there's attraction there's all this extra stuff money that's that's kind of accrued in the process and it's attracted but it's as fans I guess it's, we just want to see football um, yeah thank you so much Ali for joining no, us no it's been an absolute pleasure and I'm more than happy to join you guys anytime it's I uh, really enjoyed it Mark, any final comments? Closing, closing comments? The best thing about this community is we'll never walk alone. <laughs> Perfect. Beautiful ending. Thank you so much for tuning in. This has been Curious Anarchy with Ollie Hibble. First 11s on Brunch with Naomi Osaka. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. 